If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From bribery and election rigging, to profiting from public office, concerns about corruption in the British establishment are nothing new. In his book, Trust and Distrust, Professor Mark Knight examines how ideas about corruption took shape over the period from 1600 to 1850, as the British public began to expect more from their officials, and those responsible for shady dealings were increasingly held to account. I spoke to Mark to find out more. In your book, Trust and Distrust, you look at the changing attitudes to corruption in Britain and its empire between 1600 and 1850. So how common was corruption in this period and what forms did it take? Uh, Measuring corruption is an incredibly difficult thing. And even today, Transparency International, which is the major uh, lobbying organisation bearing down on corruption, finds it very difficult to measure and they have a transparency corruption index, which is enormously controversial. So it's very difficult to measure even in 
the contemporary world. So it, it's, it's also really difficult to measure in the past. But obviously, we've got lots of contemporary comments in print and in private, in which contemporaries talk about corruption a lot. And they talk about the prevalence of corruption as being really very extensive. And that's particularly the case really from the start of the 17th century onwards. And it has certain points of intensity. I think perhaps the 18th century is, is perhaps a, a century that when people are really very, very worried about the prevalence of, of corruption, but it does wane and, and flux uh, at different moments. As you mentioned, it's very hard to define what corruption is. But in this period, what kind of activities are we looking at? The definition of corruption shifts over the period that I examine. So in 1600, corruption was generally seen as something linked to religion. If, if you called someone corrupt, it usually meant that they were sinful beings and man was a corrupted creature. And that was particularly charged for Protestants in Britain because they also associated Catholicism, the arch enemy of Protestantism, with corruption. It was a corrupt religion. So to call someone corrupt had this sort of doubly religiously powerful message bundled up in that religious idea of corruption is also a notion that corruption is, is a moral failing. And that could also be a sexual failing. So, for example, Charles II's mistress, the Duchess of Portsmouth, was prosecuted for her immorality as well as for her financial greed. And that moral charge is really important because that persisted right the way through the period and I think probably still has relevance today. The legislation defining corruption was, however, much thinner. So the only two areas that were defined as corruption for much of the period that I look at was the judiciary from the late 17th century onwards elections, because as party politics took off uh, from the late 17th century onwards, there was growing concern that the two parties were using bribes to try and get voters uh, on their sides. So legislation-wise, those are the two areas. But over the course of the period that I look at, there is a there was a shift, really, towards a more modern understanding of corruption, towards an idea of corruption being a political and an economic sort of crime. Today, a very commonly used definition of bribery is the abuse of public office for private gain. But they really grew over the course of the 17th, 18th, 19th century as ways of trying to define what corruption was. And the politics of it, the political side of the corruption, was often as much about the crown's influence, the, the, the influence of the monarchy, as opposed to individuals. So the monarchy was seen to have an undue influence over parliament. And that was seen as corrupting the political process. And the economic side of it was that as the state's resources grew and grew over this period, then the temptations um, to embezzle public funds, uh, to appropriate public funds for private use, similarly grew and grew. And that situation 
pertains in in for the state, but it also was relevant to private corporations. So one of the corporations that I look at in the book is the East India Company, often called the sort of original corporate raiders, because the East India Company was almost like a state. Uh, it had state-like powers. It could wage war. It could raise taxation uh, and so on. And the people who officered the East India Company also had access to vast amounts of money and vast amounts of power. And many of the same problems to do with the abuse of office for private gain occurred in that sort of private sector. Indeed, you could argue that the East India Company is a sort of hybrid public-private sort of organisation. So we've got forms of corruption in public office. We've got them in the judiciary and in and private corporations, as you say, like the East India Company. Can we see corruption at all levels of these bodies or is it more something that's limited to the elites? Well, political scientists make a distinction between grand corruption, which is sort of elite corruption and and petty corruption, which is much more minor corruption, often at a sort of local level. And in the pre-modern world, I think we can find both of those. So there's certainly corruption at the local level in in pre-modern Britain. The parishes, the, the most lowly form of administration really in this period, were increasingly raising quite substantial amounts of money to pay for poor relief and for infrastructural projects. So the amount of money swilling around in parish coffers was quite significant by the end of the 18th century into the 19th century. And quite a lot of that money it was thought, was actually going adrift. So there's a big scandal in Manchester in the 1790s where an anti-corruption campaigner, Thomas Batty, estimated that about half of the amount of money that was raised for poor relief was being misspent or embezzled. So really quite substantial amounts at a very local level. And in London in the early 19th century... There's an extraordinary case in the East End, in in Bethnal Green, of a magistrate, uh, Joseph Merceron, who was really the sort of Mr. Big of, of the East End. He managed to siphon off very large amounts of money, but also to build around him a sort of clique of followers who would do his will come what may. And he spent a little bit of time in prison, but he, he largely got off scot-free and he, he was said to have died with a fortune of about £300,000. So even at the lower levels, there were interesting ways in which uh, access to office uh, opened up uh, the potential for corruption. That's an interesting idea about the access to office opening up these possibilities. So do you see this as something systemic, um, that the system was really vulnerable to corruption? Or was it cultural um, in that people thought, if you have a chance to be in public office, you better take what you can from it? Or perhaps was it a mixture of both? I think it's very much a mixture of of the two. When when Samuel Pepys, the the famous 17th century diarist, uh, was appointed to office uh, at the restoration of the monarchy in, in 1660, he was told really that it was the rent from his office. It was what you could gain from your office that was important, not the salary that you got from it. And Pepys's diary gives us a a fascinating glimpse into the cultural ways in which people thought about corruption. So Pepys accepted all sorts of gifts of of money, but also of exotic animals. (laughs) Um, uh, He he even took sexual gratification as a sort of form of reward for people seeking service. And what was his office? 
So he, he was an administrator in the Navy office um, and rose to become really very important and a sort of uh, right-hand man to the future King James II when he was Lord High Admiral um, in, in, the, uh, in the Restoration era. So he was a really influential person. He had contracts to give away. Uh, but he had a sort of ambiguous attitude to, to those. So he could discern corruption in other people. The diary records him saying, you know, Sir William Batten is a, is a corrupt person. But he couldn't see what he accepted as bribes. He referred to them as gratuities or rewards or acknowledgements for things that he'd done. So Samuel Pepys, in, in order to uh, prevent possible prosecution recorded in his diary that he even uh, closed his eyes when accepting money. There's one occasion where uh, somebody who's trying to obtain a contract puts some guineas, some money into a glove uh, and Pepys records in his diary that he closed his eyes and <laughs> let the money drop into his hands so that he could honestly say that he had not seen the money uh, come his way. So he, his diary is a, is a wonderful way of sort of showing how culturally ambiguous attitudes to corruption were. But it is also the case, as, as you were suggesting, that it's a systemic problem as well. And indeed, the whole idea of thinking about corruption as a systemic problem is one which grows over the period. From about the mid-18th century, we find people routinely talking about a system of corruption or a corrupt system. And by that, they meant that there was a sort of interweaving of different forms of corruption that were making it very, very hard to reform. So you had a corrupt parliamentary system, you had a corrupt influence of the crown, you had a corrupt financial system, a corrupt legal system, and a corrupt imperial system, uh, which forced Britain into unnecessary wars, which were hugely expensive and created all sorts of uh, oppressive taxes on the ordinary citizen. And so that idea of it being a system that, that crushes John Bull down is, is an increasingly important one. And I think there's another way in which it's seen as systemic, because one of the other developments over this period is the sort of separation of roles. So there was increasing recognition that if you held more than one type of office simultaneously, you were more likely to be corrupt. And you can see that in the West Indies, where the governors of the West Indian islands very often were you know, chief magistrate, they had political power, they had economic power, uh, they had military power, etc. And this made them enormously prone to, to corruption. So that systemic problem is also one of overlapping roles. And over the period, those roles tend to get separated out. If there was this awareness, even at the time, that corruption was fairly pervasive in Britain and its empire, what attempts were there to tackle that? So there were many attempts at uh, trying to reform corruption uh, in, in this period. And very often those arose uh, from particular scandals around particular individuals, which 
force people to think a little bit more about how the system as a whole could be corrected. But the reform processes took place over a very, very long period of time. So one of the reasons why I have such a long chronology for my book, 250 years, is that I think it took that amount of time for these reform processes to really kick in. So to give you an example, Parliament reinvented a process to bring people to account for corruption called impeachment. We're all familiar with that from from recent events uh, in in America. Um, Impeachment was a parliamentary trial, and it was set up in order to prosecute people for corruption. And it was revived in 1621, and the last one was in 1806. So impeachment, sort of formal prosecution, was one way of trying to reform it, purging out the bad apples. More systemic reform took place over a much more, in a much more piecemeal way, over a much longer period of time. Really, we can see it in the East India Company. So the East India Company had a series of parliamentary statutes put onto it from the 1770s onwards to try and bear down on the corruption in the East India Company. It took them many attempts to do that, but eventually that the East India Company was partly reformed, never never entirely reformed, because it had to be uh, dissolved, essentially, for the Crown to take over in, in, in 1858. Other means of reform really sort of gathered pace in the late 18th century and into the 19th century, which is often called the age of reform. So parliamentary reform came onto the bill, reform of local government for all the reasons that I was outlining earlier on, uh, reform of the church. The church was also seen as a, as a, as a corrupt institution. Some reforms in, in the army, though you could still buy an office in the army until 1871. So these processes of reform uh, took place over a very long period of time. They're they're often given a a real impetus by public pressure. So it's not just that reform comes from up above, it's also coming from below. And access to the press and lots of public discussion about corruption in the press meant that there was always a, a degree of pressure on the elite about their corrupt behaviour, exposing it, ridiculing it, laughing at it, being outraged by it, but also demanding for its reform. Well, on your note of outrage, you mentioned earlier that a lot of this reform was generated by response to scandals. So I've got to, of course, ask you about some of the biggest scandals. What are some of the, the major corruption cases that really shocked Britain? Well, there were, there were many of them. Um, and one of the reasons why this is such a, a big book of 500 pages is that we had a lot of uh, scandals. So I, I mentioned the revival of parliamentary trials, the, the impeachment process. That, that they were restored in 1621 to prosecute Francis Bacon, one of the leading sort of intellectuals of his of his age. He's often mistakenly, I think, uh, thought to have written many of Shakespeare's plays. He's also a great advocate of scientific enlightenment and revolution. But he's he was prosecuted for accepting bribes as uh, he was the highest law officer in the land. He was Lord Chancellor at the time, and he was prosecuted for accepting bribes. Uh, Although perhaps not personally, it was more his servants who accepted the bribes on his behalf. 
So that was the starting gun, if you like, for, for many of these sort of big sensational trials. And the impeachment process became really very dramatic and theatrical. One of the other sort of major scandalous trials held in Parliament was of uh, the Governor-General of, of India, Warren Hastings. One of the longest trials in British history. It lasted from 1786, its preliminary proceedings, and didn't finish till 1795. So it was this massively long trial, and it generated, at least at its beginning, a huge amount of public interest. You could even buy a ticket to go along and attend the trial of Warren Hastings, and these were really sought after. You know, Even the, the fashionable ladies wanted to be there at the trial to look at how people were performing. And Edmund Burke, the great orator, opened the trial with uh, a speech that went on uh, for two days. So these, these were great, uh, you know, staged uh, events and, and, and really pieces of public theatre. But there were other sort of really big scandals that were in the imperial sphere, which were by nature more remote and perhaps generated less domestic reverberations, but were, were still really important. So uh, I, I start the book with a, a case in India in 1828, when a very young man who later became Sir Charles Trevelyan, just, just plain Charles at this point, a, a man of 21, prosecuted his boss, Sir Edward Colebrook, for corruption. And Colebrook was uh, the official at Delhi, and he was accused by uh, Trevelyan of accepting quite considerable amount of, of gifts, which he should have declared to the East India Company, which he kept for himself and for his wife. Uh, indeed, he, Trevelyan thought that his wife was probably the main instigator of, of, of all this sort of system of corruption, as he, as he called it. And the reason why that particular trial was important was that Charles Trevelyan, when he returned to England, became an administrator uh, for the domestic government. He rose through the ranks and in 1854 wrote a report with uh, another civil servant uh, and they produced a report, the Northcote Trevelyan Report, which is often seen as the blueprint for the British civil service. Indeed, the term civil servant comes from the East India Company, which divided its officers into two classes, those who were in the army and those who were not the, the, the civil servants. And Colebrook used his experience of prosecuting uh, his boss for corruption to think about ways in which you produce a, a cleaner, more efficient type of civil service. And many of those ideas find their way into uh, the domestic uh, civil service. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. At the election in Shaftesbury in uh, the 1780s, were accused of handing out money through a hole in, the in a wall so that they couldn't be accused of directly giving voters money. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. That connection between the empire and the domestic setting is really interesting. I wanted to ask you about Britain's empire specifically, because were imperial contexts more vulnerable to corruption than back home in Britain? Yes, they they, they certainly were. And I, I mentioned earlier on the West Indies islands who had governors with these multiple roles. I think that's certainly one systemic problem that the empire faces. But the West Indies and the East Indies were thousands of miles away. And it took a very long time for um, letters to be uh, sent from London to the colony and then from the colony back again. So London relied very extensively on local discretion, on the discretion of those people on the ground. And sometimes the more people, the more discretion you give to people, the more they are likely to abuse it, particularly if they don't think the, the restraints on it are, are, are particularly strong. And that's certainly the case. I think that's really one of the, the problems of the, of the colonial sphere. It's also the case that colonists can not only appeal to the people on the islands or in the colony, but they can also appeal back to London. And so there's very often a sort of factional, political dimension to all these imperial disputes, where London gets dragged into local disputes in the colonies. So we see this really viciously in in the West Indies, where the white planter elite really accuse each other of corruption almost perpetually for a period of 60, 70 years or so, and keep on appealing to London to try and bring them in to act as a, as a lever to oust their rivals from, from power. And the other problem in, in the imperial context is, is obviously in, in India, because the state was relying on this sort of hybrid public-private company to actually do a lot of its work for it. By, by the early 19th century, the East India Company, which is still a commercial op- operation at that point, is referred to as 
government. So there is this sort of blurring between what is a private enterprise and what is a, a public money-making machine. And that, that same blurring of the boundaries between the public and the private, the individual and the national, I think really sort of bedevils a lot of the East India Company's problems. So individuals in the company see themselves as advancing their own profit, uh, the profit of the company and the profit of the nation simultaneously. But obviously, there's a tension between those three things. It's not always in the company's interest if one of their servants is making vast amounts of money. And uh, it's not in the national interest sometimes for the East India Company to be carving out a monopoly trade in, in, in one area. So, there, there are some real tensions, I think, in, in the way in which these trading companies like the East India Company uh, were set up, which almost sort of guaranteed a sort of colonial imperial scandal. Is there any way that we can trace the impact of all of this on the systems of government? Did they impair the functioning of British government over this period or is it just impossible to untangle? Certainly there's the perception that it did. The Prime Minister in the early 18th century, Sir Robert Walpole, uh, was often blamed for creating the system of corruption. So he used treasury money to bribe voters to uh, return a guaranteed majority in Parliament and then to do what he liked with that majority. And from his point of view, that was a system that worked very well. But from his critics' point of view, who included figures like Jonathan Swift, the, the satirist, whose Gulliver's Travels you could see as a sort of, um, uh, in some ways, a bit, a bit of an indictment of the Walpolean era, or John Gay, the, the author of uh, The Beggar's Opera, one of the most successful pieces of, of theatre in the early 18th century, which attacked Walpole's government as well. From their point of view, Walpole's regime was really quite dangerous. Um, it was undermining of uh, the independence of Parliament, and that was really dangerous. And it led to all sorts of problems and indulgence of luxury and a profusion of expenditure that was not good for the British nation. So I think it, it, it depended who you were. Uh, for those who were able to create and manipulate the systems of corruption, they worked extremely well um, and they were extremely enduring. For those who were critics on the outside, they were really damaging. And, and that, I think, is one of the other really sort of fascinating things about this. It's it's a contest. And these these two forces slug it out against one another uh, across this whole period in quite intense ways uh, until finally the forces of reform gather gather speed in, in, in the 19th century. I don't think it's ever a complete victory. I don't think uh, you know, anti-corruption ever is a, something which ends. I think it's a sort of ongoing process. But perhaps the other point to, to mention here is that some of the ideas that we hold sort of really dear to us as principles of uh, public life were hammered out as a result of that contest and also as a result of a notion that holding an office was a trust you were entrusted by the public to do something. We still talk about officials uh, breaching their trust or abusing their trust. And that's a terminology and a concept which really took off in the 17th century. And it was a legal concept. You, you could be prosecuted for breach of trust. And 
There was a very spectacular case in 1783 when one of the accountants in the army pay office, a man called Charles Bembridge, was prosecuted for breach of trust and misconduct in office. And those types of prosecutions over time embedded notions of selflessness. Officials ought to avoid conflicts of interest, that they ought to be impartial, and that they were accountable to the public, uh, as well as having a sort of duty of care. All those ideas which we now see as sort of routine in in public life, uh, standards of public life, are inherent in this notion of trust, a legally enforceable set of values. Could you tell us a little bit more about that breach of trust case and what it tells us about debates, as you say, about this idea at the time? Yeah, so it's an interesting case because uh, legal historians still refer to it as the foundational case for defining misconduct in office. Indeed, the, the Law Commission recently uh, looked at all this and it started its its report with this 1783 case. It was of, a, of an accountant, Charles Bembridge, who wasn't formally employed by the state. And that was one of the issues in, in the case. He said that he, he wasn't a state official. The court decided he was because he was in receipt of public money. And he was accused of failing to disclose £48,000 from the accounts of the paymaster general of the armed forces, Lord Holland. Which is a lot of a lot of money at the time. It is a it is a huge amount of money, uh, uh, absolutely. And his response was that he couldn't really have disclosed that money without breaching the social obligations that he had uh, to the person that appointed him in the job, and also that he didn't really have any responsibility as as this sort of semi-public, semi-private individual to, to make this sort of declaration. And that, you know, if, if he was prosecuted for this, where, where would it end? Would, would everybody who was in, you know, holding an office be brought to book for every minor little uh, misdemeanour that, that they committed? Uh, so it was a slightly strange defence. And needless to say, the, the, the judges disagreed with, with that defence and said... No, this, this is misconduct in office. You are a public officer and it was your duty to disclose this missing amount of money and your failure to do it was a corrupt failure to do so. And that's, that's seen as really one of the first moments when the law of, of, of misconduct in office, that, that was really the, the sort of foundational case for that. Before we finish, there's one more type of corruption I wanted to ask you about specifically, which was electoral corruption. How did ideas about the involvement of money, especially in elections, change over this time? Over the period that I've been looking at, 1600 to 1850, uh, Britain moved from a system of what uh, one historian, Mark Kislansky, calls selection to election. In other words, uh, the beginning of the period, there was the idea that gentlemen were selected to sit in Parliament. And by the end of the period, you've got hard-fought contests in which elections were genuine competitions between individuals for election. As part of that competitive process, there was uh, the emergence of party politics. 
So Whigs and Tories emerged from the late 17th century onwards, and partisan divisions meant that there were enormous incentives to try and get your party into Parliament. And that led to increasing amounts of money being spent on on elections. So from the 1690s onwards, Parliament gets really worried about this. They think that Parliament's integrity is being corrupted by this money swilling around at election time that is perverting the will of the people. So they introduce various attempts to to try and reduce the bribery uh, that's going on at at election time. Very, very unsuccessfully, it has to be said. I mean, it's really not until the the late 19th century that electoral corruption is really tackled and and, and really uh, removed. So for much of this period, Huge amounts of money is swilling around um, at election time. Perhaps, perhaps the most eye-catching of those is uh, two hundred thousand pounds spent in in one county election in Yorkshire in in eighteen o seven. That's about nine million pounds in today's money, just in one county election being distributed amongst voters and paying for for their their entertainment. So, William Hogarth. Painted uh, a wonderful series of satires, which were uh, reproduced as as prints in the mid eighteenth century, uh, satirizing uh, electoral corruption. There's there's one of the election feast where voters are invited to sit down to a sort of banquet of of rich food and and copious amounts of wine, and there are many cases of money being abused in this way for electoral advantage. So to go back to the East India Company, one of the one of the nabobs, as they were called, one of the returning East India Company officials who was so wealthy, he was like an Indian nawab, an Indian prince, uh, a man called Francis Sykes with, his, with a sidekick called Thomas Rumble. Both of them had made absolute fortunes out in India through very, very corrupt means. They returned and at the election in Shaftesbury in uh, the 1780s were accused of handing out money through a hole in the in a wall so that they couldn't be accused of directly giving voters money. So, so they, it, it, it achieved some sort of farcical elements uh, in, as people sort of tried to work their way around what legislation there was. Obviously, the, the Great Reform Reform Act of, of 1832 went some way to removing some of the most rotten of the boroughs, but really, as I say, the, the, the situation of, of bribery and corruption persists well into the 1860s. So as you say, the, the story of corruption persists. You finished your book in 1850, but that's not the end of the, the story here. How do you think that we should look back on all of this today? Do you think it can tell us anything interesting about how we view corruption today and what we expect from those in public office? Yes, I I think it does uh, tell us some lessons. I mean, one obvious one is that this was a very long, protracted struggle to to bear down on on corrupt behaviour, and that the mechanisms and the measures that were put in place were very hard fought and and hard won. We shouldn't think of anti-corruption as being a very quick thing. Uh, it's something which takes a long time. It also takes a lot of cultural. Uh, work the attitudes that I was talking about in terms of of peeps and the gifts that he was accepting those types of attitudes take a lo- very long time to to turn around e- even now I think ideas about favoring your friends or your kin um, advancing them over other people perhaps when uh, other people are more deserving that's still a very gray area 
And it was really difficult in, in the early modern period when those types of social bonds were, were really strong. Many of the problems, I guess, of pre-modern corruption are still with us today because corruption exists at this sort of boundary between the public and the private, between the formal and the informal. And each society, each uh, political culture needs to decide for itself where you draw the boundary. But I think it's also the case that, that more recently people have been concerned that we're perhaps slipping back into a sort of 18th century uh, form of, of corruption. And we should we should think really hard about trying to preserve many of the principles that I was just outlining earlier on that are embedded in the Nolan principles, as, as they're called nowadays, the seven principles of, of public life, selflessness, avoiding conflict of interest, impartiality, accountability, duty of care, and so on. Those are all really worked out in the period that I study, but they're, they're really precious, they're really important, and we shouldn't ride uh, roughshod uh, over them, I think. That was Professor Mark Knights. His book is Trust and Distrust, Corruption in Office in Britain and its Empire, 1600 to 1850, which is on sale now, published by Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Hold up. 